Hello and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast. I'm your host Rick Cole and each week I take you on a trip down memory lane back 50 years in time and we report on all the hockey news that was taking place during that era. Hard to believe this is our 89th episode in our series as we uh, just about finish our second year now. In today's episode, we're looking at the week of July 5th to 11th, 1971. McGregor versus Poirier 3 is all set for UFC 264. Every punch, kick, and knockout means so much more with a DraftKings lineup on the line. DraftKings, the official daily fantasy partner of UFC, is giving you a shot at huge cash prizes. For this weekend's fight, DraftKings is offering all customers a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. If you haven't tried it yet, Fantasy MMA is really easy to play. Just pick six fighters, stay under the salary cap, and pile up the points for advances, takedowns, and much more. There's no better way to put your MMA knowledge to the test than to compete for a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes. Plus, don't forget about basketball and hockey, where DraftKings has even more money up for grabs throughout the week. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds anytime at your convenience. It's the McGregor versus Poirier rubber match. Get in on the action now. Download the DraftKings app and use promo code THPN for your shot at millions of dollars in total prizes throughout the week. That's promo code THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network to get a shot at millions of dollars in total prizes only at DraftKings. Eligibility restrictions apply and see DraftKings.com for all the details. And don't forget that in addition to DraftKings, we are also sponsored by a couple of fine businesses, Newspapers.com, the world's largest online newspaper archive, and the Breakwall Brewing Company, located in beautiful downtown Port Coburn, Ontario. Right now, there's just about nothing better than sitting on the patio at the Breakwall having a beer and a burger. So this week, as we as we get underway, we're in full July mode, if you know what that means. Not a lot of hockey, uh, breaking hockey news this week. We did take, dig up some interesting tidbits. Then uh, we'll try and give you a few of those quick hits before we delve into uh, a little more feature-oriented content for your summer hockey pleasure. First up, we have some news on that poor fellow who was going around New York City, and I guess other locations as well, pretending that he was Ivan Cornway. The Canadian press reported that a man accused of uh, portraying Cornway was ruled in a New York court that he was unfit to stand trial for fraud. Vincent Randaccio, 43, of New York City, was remanded in custody for committal to Riverview Mental Hospital. Randaccio was arrested on June 17th by police as he was leaving a waterfront hotel on a chartered yacht. He was charged with fraudulently obtaining food and lodging from the hotel and one count of obtaining cash by fraud and of attempting to buy a car 
by fraud. This is identity theft 50 years ago. Bobby Russo recently traded to the New York Rangers from the Minnesota North Stars. Everybody knows Bobby's a pretty good golfer as well as a veteran NHL player. Well, Bobby this week signed on to compete in the next three events on the 1971 Professional Golf Tour. Uh, Russo is going to take part in this week's Milwaukee Open, then in the follow-up Western Open, and finally in that very rich Westchester Classic. Let's see how Bobby does against the real golf pros. Gordy Howe's name came in the news this week, and uh, we learned that Gordy's career as a major league hockey player might come to a stop after 25 years. A painful arthritic wrist is the cause of this uh, indecision. We said it might come to a, a close, that not that it wouldn't, but Gordy gave indications this week that he uh, is considering not playing next fall. A month ago, Gordy announced at a dinner in Oshawa, Ontario, that he would play at least one more season, but this week his words were simply now, I just don't know. Gordy was at the uh, Eaton stores in Ontario this week, part of his longtime uh, employment with the Eaton's uh, department store chain. Uh, he was leaving for Western Canada when he made the uh, announcement. Gordy's making stops in Winnipeg, Calgary, Victoria, Vancouver as Eaton's chief sports advisor. This is a, 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 at the midway point of a 10-year contract that Gordy has with Eaton's. Gordy says, this has been a trying year. My wrist has bothered me beyond belief. He says, I'm really undecided, and with the death of my mother a week ago, it's got everything up in the air. Gord says, the best guess is that he'll probably turn up at training camp and see how things go once he gets on the ice. Gord says that whatever whatever I decide to do about playing, I have my interests so arranged that when I hang up my gear, I'll be able to stay with the Red Wings in a public relations capacity of some sorts. Now, Gordy's business interests are many and varied. He is vice president of Nellick, a part of a rapidly expanding insurance and real estate complex, which is owned, of course, by Bruce Norris, and he is also the owner of the Detroit Red Wings. Now here's a few things about Gordy you might not know about his off-ice activities. Two years ago, Gordy became interested in breeding cattle and he's actually a partner in a 10,000 acre ranch in Jackson, Michigan, which is home to 170 purebred polled Herefords with more cattle expected daily. Gord has, has spent a lot of his spare time in the past couple of years studying both cattle breeding and the insurance industries. He recently passed an insurance examination and he now holds a license to sell life insurance in Michigan. He also owns a hockey arena just outside of Detroit and he conducts his own summer school there. He also has a contract to make public appearances 
for a major automobile firm in the United States. Howe is, of course, naturally very much concerned with the hockey future of his two eldest sons, Marty, who's 17, and 16-year-old Mark. Both of those boys played for the junior Detroit Red Wings in the Southern Ontario Junior A League last season. The Detroit team uh, in that league was a first-year league last year, was organized mainly by their mother, Colleen Hall. Both boys will likely continue their studies and continue their hockey in Ontario, playing for one of the clubs in the major junior A circuit in that uh, Canadian province. Marty, next season, Mark will come to junior A probably a year later. Gordy gave this update on the future of his two boys. He says, we talked to representatives of four or five of the OHA junior A teams, and all of them have been very kind to us. Uh, Gord said that he was most impressed with Tommy Smythe, who was the general manager of the Toronto Marlboros Hockey Club and son of Maple Leafs President Stafford Smythe. But he said the others have been equally as obliging in helping us out. It's going to be a tough decision, but in the end, it'll be the boys who decide where they end up in junior hockey. Gordy addressed the issue of his troublesome wrist. He says it sometimes it gets just unbear- unbearable. I've even thought of tying the wrist to the bed, like putting it in traction just to get some sleep at night. It keeps me awake. Two weeks ago, I tried trail bike riding at our cottage, and the pain of my wrist that night was absolutely terrible. Gordy said he's a, he would always keep on playing hockey until it was no longer fun. That's a well-known quote from Gordy. Gordy, well, he says that it hasn't been fun in the last two years, and he doesn't really know what he's going to do about it. Last year, especially, it was not fun for Gordy. And I don't know whether the uh, uh, wrist problems is the loyal employee Gordy kind of giving this as an excuse when he really doesn't want to play for the management that's in place with the Detroit Red Wings right now. That, more than anything else, I think, could drive him away from the Red Wings franchise. I read this back in 1971 and I started thinking again, man, they keep running into obstacles with the expansion of Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo. A Teamsters Union strike this week could prevent completion of a seating expansion project at the odd so that it may not be ready in time for the forthcoming NHL season. And of course, that would include the NBA as well. This comes from sources within the construction industry at the odd site. So here's what's going on there. The Teamsters Union struck the Ready Mix Concrete Companies last month. A company official said the entire project would be delayed because concrete, and especially the type needed for this uh, uh, major construction project, needs to set for 28 days after its port. Now, the city of Buffalo had hoped to add an extra balcony, raising the auditorium's seating capacity to over 15,000 by this October. The NHL's Buffalo Sabres and the NBA's Buffalo Braves, of course, all play their home games at the odd. Last season, they were playing to a capacity of just over 10,000, and that extra 5,000 seats is critical for these teams to survive in their major league environment. Here's the latest on the financial woes at Metacor, that fine American institution that owns Canada's third major hockey club, the Vancouver Canucks. 
a total 1970 loss of $2,734,612 was reported yesterday by the Medical Investment Corporation, known as Medicor of Minneapolis. They are, of course, the parent company of the Canucks. Thomas K. Scallon, president of Medicor, said the total included losses of 436316 from continuing operations, $800,000 from discontinued operations, and $1,094,049 from what he called extraordinary items. Total revenue for the company for the year was $16,409,745. Scallon said the substantial losses were incurred by the international ice follies. No, that's not the Canucks. That's an entertain figure skating entertainment program. The international ice follies were discontinued early last year. And they also, losses came from discontinued motel and restaurant operations and from the sale of securities associated with the company's purchase of the Canucks NHL franchise. Medicor, as you may remember, they own 60.1% of Northwest Sports Enterprises, which is the operating company of the Canucks. Earlier this year, the Canadian directors of Northwest said they would resign over the transfers of $4.5 million to the American offices without their knowledge or agreement. And later, Capazzi Enterprises Limited, a Vancouver-based Canadian company, loaned Medicor funds to repay a debt of $3.5 million on which they nearly defaulted. And so this thing is still up in the air. The, the Canucks could still fall back into the hands of Canadian owners if Medicor can't come up with the money they need to keep on operating the hockey club. We have a few notes from uh, activities that are more uh, hockey ice related. The North Stars uh, sold a pair of centers to the Western Hockey League Phoenix Roadrunners this week. They were Bobby Whitlock and Claude Pichet and they'll attend the Roadrunners training camp this fall but they remain the property of the North Stars in the unlikely event that either of those two players are needed by the NHL club. The North Stars also announced the signings of three veterans Lou Nanny, Ted Harris and J.P. Parise all inked their 71-72 contracts. Longtime Cleveland Barons defenseman Bill Needham has retired from pro hockey and he has become the coach of the International Hockey League Toledo Hornets. Jean Beliveau has picked up yet another plum post for his post hockey career. Jean has joined the board of directors for Laval Dairy, which is not located in Laval, but rather has its head offices in Quebec City. And back for his ninth season as coach of the Eastern Hockey League Charlotte Checkers is good guy Freddie Creighton. And we're wondering when Freddie will finally get a shot at maybe coaching in the big leagues one of these days. Now, you'll remember last week we talked about Clarence Campbell meeting with Bill Shea, the bon vivant New lawyer, New York City sportsman who's been tasked with getting an NHL club into that new arena on Long Island. They had they broke bread together 
And we told you a little bit about that meeting. Well, this week we found out just a few more things that were going on there that weren't reported right away. Uh, we did know this week Bill was telling anybody that would listen that he expects a National Hockey League club to play out of the uh, Nassau County Coliseum starting in the 1972-73 season. Clarence Campbell didn't quite agree with that assessment of the situation. He admitted that Long Island is likely on the list for the next National Hockey League expansion, but he says that any expansion that takes place by the NHL might not happen until the fall of 1974. Now, normally you wouldn't have the NHL interested in putting another team in New York because of all the complications with territorial rights. We went through that with the Buffalo Sabres and the Maple Leafs. And now, of course, the Rangers own all the territorial rights of New York City. Well, the reason that this interest may have been peaked in New York is because the advent of this new so-called major hockey league, something named the World Hockey Association. Now, there are a lot of issues to overcome in Long Island, and of course, not the least of which would be the amount of indemnification the Rangers would want for surrendering their territorial rights. We don't think that is an insurmountable obstacle. You see, here's something else we we uncovered in the last week. This wasn't widely known at the time, but you know who else was in the meeting with Clarence Campbell and Bill Shea? None other than the New York Rangers president and chairman of the league's expansion committee, William Jennings. He was on the tour of the the arena construction site with both Campbell and Bill Shea, And so he is apparently giving his stamp of approval to another team in New York, probably anticipating the many millions of dollars that this new club would have to pay to play in New York. One of the uh, big changes to the hockey, in fact, the sporting world, but especially in hockey, what we found has been the advent of the use of agents by players in the past few years. Now, Rich Coster is a fine reporter for the Detroit Free Press, and he takes a look at what all this agent stuff means in 1971. Now, there's some non-hockey content in here, but we think everything that uh, is talked about in in this article is very relevant to the uh, financial situations that existed in the hockey world at this time, and especially if this World Hockey Association idea does in fact become a reality. If Alan Eagleson sounds like a character out of a hockey version of Alice in Wonderland, he he really isn't. Eagleson doesn't deal in fantasy. He's a dollars and cents realist. And as a matter of fact, he and scores like him are the most controversial reality to hit pro sports in many years. They're a sign of the times, like symmetrical stadiums, artificial turf, Super Bowls, television uh, saturation, and $100,000 a year salaries for athletes. They're reality and they're here. In the slang of the trade around the sporting world, these middlemen are called muscle hustlers. They are agents, lawyers, advisors, counselors of varying relationship and financial arrangements with their clients. Their mission, their only mission, is to make sure that today's athletes get all that's coming to them 
and maybe a little more than they deserve. But while they are around and apparently here to stay, the professional agents are not necessarily welcome in the corporate suites of major league sports franchises. They're strictly a bunch of parasites, says Cincinnati Browns owner Paul Brown. There's no need for agents because players get the same from us with or without bargaining help. Paul Brown says that the players are just giving away their money to a bunch of scheming, greedy opportunists. Of course, in rebuttal, an agent lawyer like Arthur Morse of Chicago says it's a mismatch for a boy who's just out of high school to talk to a club owner who's a money engineer. Bucky Wari of Akron, Ohio, a thriving newcomer in the field of agentry, says name me a successful athlete or entertainer who isn't represented nowadays by an agent. These kids aren't stupid, but they are naive. The owners try to frighten them into signing cheap contracts. They'll call a kid and tell him if he doesn't sign today, then he can't make the team. What kind of way is that? To treat a young kid. Okay, so that kind of rhetoric could be could be quoted ad infinitum. The two sides are obviously uh, diametrically opposed, and no mediator is likely to bring the two sides peacefully together. At best, you can only define the various positions, and there are more than just two angles to this. First of all, there's the agent, and he and the sports owner are at war. No holds barred, no doubt about that. The pure agent negotiates and takes 10% right off the top, and then he uh, sits out the season in a box seat watching his uh, clients do their work. Now, Larry McPhail of the Yankees is a typical owner uh rationalization of the situation here. Larry says, and, and you know this is not 100% true, he says that in many cases the player suffers because he has an agent because the owner of the team will battle much harder with an agent over salary than with the player themselves. Now that's not really what happens. It's easier to con an athlete who is not well-versed in financial matters. Larry McPhail doesn't tell you that. Now, besides these pure agents I just talked about, there's other uh, types of guys that have become involved in these types of negotiations. There are lawyers and refugees from other fields who are in the business of representing athletes. As a matter of record, there are ex-investment counselors, sports writers even, public relations experts, and promoters of other backgrounds, including at least one former tire salesman who's representing a prominent athlete. That guy, by the way, is a fellow by the name of Chuck Barnes of Los Angeles, who represents O.J. Simpson and procured him over a half million dollars in endorsement contracts before O.J. ever put his signature on a professional football contract. That's an agent. Now, many of these guys, as we mentioned, they do nothing except go in, negotiate, take their cut of the contract, and then disappear into the woodwork. Hence, when you talk to attorneys like Al Eagleson, Mark McCormick of Cleveland, or Bob Wolf of Boston, they are highly insulted when you, they are referred to by the press as, quote, agents. 
I'm no agent, says McCormick. I consider myself to be primarily an attorney, but in fact, I'm sort of an engineer of careers and lives. I handle everything. It merely starts with the contract. Uh, there's one lawyer critic uh, who uh, hates the agent, the agency thing that lawyers are getting into. What he, this guy calls it pure agency. And he gives this example of how a fledgling professional athlete might be fleeced of a large portion of his money. This fellow, who uh, chose to remain anonymous, uh, tell, tells Rich Coster that there are few no-cut contracts being given in the National Football League these days. So say a rookie signs for a $14,000 bonus and gets three one-year contracts at, say, $20,000, $24,000. Then he gets a couple of incentive clauses for making the 40-man squad, and for making All-Pro, he gets another ten grand. That's a package of $90,000 with the agent getting $9,000 of that off the top and then suppose the player doesn't make the team all he gets is the $14,000 bonus and he's already given away $9,000 of that of course the uh, charges of agents being scoundrels are legendary among uh, professional athletes Denny McLean blamed much of his financial troubles and they are legendary on a business agent Jerry Lucas the basketball player filed bankruptcy after investing heavily in a chain of quick food restaurants that were supposed to do well but of course they didn't then, of course, there's this well-known tale of a three-time NFL All-Pro flanker who was paid $10,000 for a 30-second hair cream hit on television. He should have netted about 9500 after a 5% charge by the agent. But the agent cut him 50%. Then an ad agency, which was also in the picture, took 20%. Then a service charge followed up, and for this $10,000 gig, the player ended up with $2,800. Alan Eagleson at one time was an anathema to the owners of the National Hockey League more than any one man. He has restructured the financial aspect of hockey. Besides representing the incomparable Bob Yore, Eagleson established the National Hockey League Players Association and it's estimated that at the bottom line, he has increased average salaries about $4,000. Now, we say up until this time. History will teach us that Alan Eagleson was not what he appeared to be. And remember that as we uh, talk about what Rich Coster wrote in this article. Phil Esposito, whose career has transcended the dark days before agents, and uh, now he's well represented. He says, when I first came up to the NHL, you had to play ball or they'd bury you in the minors. Everyone was leery, but the association has given the players some security. The Bruins' Johnny McKenzie added, if you argued about money when I first came up nine years ago, they'd say, screw you, and you'd be down in the minors in some hick town for the rest of your hockey career. But then, of course, along came Eagleson. First came onto the hockey scene when uh, players on a minor league team, the American Hockey League, Springfield Indians, revolted against their owner, who was, of course, the legendary Eddie Shore. Now, 
He helped establish the Players Association and the big uh, break for Al is he took over the uh, financial uh, businesses of Bobby Orr. In the pre-Orr days, the best rookie contract was anywhere from about 7000 in the first year, 7500 in the second, and they might get a $3,000 signing bonus if they were really, really good. Eagleson held out for and got between fifty dollars and $100,000 plus a $25,000 signing bonus for young Mr. Orr. Johnny McKenzie says Eagleson helped everybody the year after he signed. I got an $11,000 a year raise. Now, Eagleson doesn't do this for nothing. Everybody knows that. He charges the NHLPA $20,000 a year for his services. He also gets another $25,000 from Bobby Orr, whose affairs take up about a quarter of his time, and his regular legal services go for 100 bucks an hour. So that's a look at how agents have changed the landscape in professional forts over the last uh, few years and how it could change even more in the future as more and more money gets poured into pro sports television contracts and the like we'll see how things change and now with free agency starting to be something that's a real possibility for professional athletes agents will probably become even more important and more prominent as time goes on I, I will apologize right off the bat. This is written 50 years ago by a very prominent hockey writer by the name of Dan Proudfoot, who was uh, filling in at the Globe and Mail for Dick Beddoes, who was on vacation. And it takes him a long time in this story to get to the point, which is that girls are starting to play hockey now. Now, this is 50 years ago. So remember, the uh, attitudes were completely different then and as I read this now I'm actually a little appalled at what I read but again 50 years ago this was the way the mentality was in hockey we'll tell you the story the way Dan Proudfoot wrote it hockey the sport of all seasons has leapt forward into yet another area of expansion this may be difficult for traditionally minded fans to accept because goodness knows things are changing helter-skelter as quickly as did the Detroit Red Wings after Ned Harkness became the general manager. But a guy has to keep pace as hockey leaps from Stanley Cup season, known to outsiders as spring, to hockey school season, summertime, and the ice is sweaty, and eager anticipation of the upcoming exhibition season which is known to everybody else's fall now just last week it should be recorded the minnesota north stars strained credibility by proudly announcing they will play the toronto maple leafs in bloomington minnesota on september 18th that's only 10 weeks from now now what we have here is a triumph of artificial ice and the zamboni resurfacing machine hockey now beats the department stores and their christmas catalogs in rushing the seasons fact is it won't be long until fans realize there is no longer a hockey season as such every season is hockey season sports fans 
Enjoy it. Three cheers for hockey. In fact, nearly 50 years later, a Canadian bank, the Bank of Nova Scotia, tried to promote hockey as the fifth season. And that, by the way, was one of the dumbest ad campaigns I ever saw. Okay, this realization does test tradition. How does a guy believe, for example, that a team doesn't start to move until the first snowfall? Players from such northern snowballs as Kirkland Lake used to suggest they really didn't feel like skating until they saw the first snow on the ground. Such nonsense was nurtured and polished and made eminently believable, of course. There's still some evidence which backs it up, too. One only has to look at the Leafs last season. They were terrible until December, by which time there was snow had fallen in the hometowns of Provel, Alberta, and Naranda, Quebec. Then the team surged. Meanwhile, the California Golden Seals and the Los Angeles Kings are waiting for their first snowfalls and their first success. Still, the hockey fan of today has to be hip to change. He knows the old bit about snow on the ground is long gone, and he gasps at the latest truism. A team cannot do well in the playoffs until it has endured the first heat wave. Remember, if you will, which team of the past Stanley Cup finals had warmer quarterfinals? Montreal, of course, and who won the cup? In the heat of the Chicago Stadium? was the Montreal Canadiens. Confidentially, reports uh, Ken Dryden, the most valuable individual to playoffs, is spending his summer in Washington, D.C., working for Ralph Nader, crusading lawyer, should be placed in, in a different perspective now. The reports claim that Dryden is in Washington to investigate something like the effects of pollution on fishermen. Now, that's not so. The Nader job is just to cover for the real purpose of why Ken is in Washington, and that's for him to discipline himself to the difficult task of performing in real heat. The real hockey player needs to be able to play at 80 degree temperatures to be at his best. Snow on the ground? Ah, that's balderdash. Snow belongs in the days when hockey was a Canadian game played on the pond. The latest change news just received here in this office is that the sport of all seasons has expanded to become the sport of two sexes. The existence of a hockey school for girls at the University of Guelph may rock the traditional fan, the man who was trouble at this time of the year keeping his attention away from baseball, football, or other inferior seasonable sports. But the school and its student body of all 15 of girls is there. It cannot be denied. It opened this week and next year the girls hockey school hopes to expand. Previously, it was rumored that girls did play hockey, but one could consider it a comical deviation. Now, however, with girls paying $55 a week to learn how to improve their hockey skills, one has to consider the possibilities. Will the day come, for example, when the game's bigger stars will endorse chest protectors? Chest protectors, we recommend them, says Bob Murch, who is a director at the Can-Am Hockey School. They're like an extension down from the shoulder pad. Mrs. Shirley Peterson, coordinator of the girls' school, and she is the coach of the University of Guelph girls' varsity team, she notes that hockey can be good for girls for the same reason that it's good for boys. And what would that be? 
Well, Shirley Peterson says the girl who plays hockey has to be the type of girl who needs hockey. She's often a farm girl, a generalization. She's often a tomboy type, the girl who wants to be independent. The girls seem to be more extroverted, those that play hockey. They seem to know where they're going and what they want. The girls at the uh, hockey school, they call they call Mrs. Peterson punch. Uh, Mrs. Peterson says they call her that because they figure I drive them like punch him like. So these girls, they are hockey fans too. They know the guys. They know the names. Some 80 boys also have begun their first week at the Can-Am Hockey School. But don't worry, parents. Uh, Mrs. Peterson and Mr. Merch say the kids are completely segregated and their programs are markedly different as well. According to, to Shirley Peterson, the girls don't have the same hockey sense as the boys. So this is what we're going to concentrate on, skating and fundamentals. Our power skating experts spends about three quarters of an hour every day with the girls. He's worked out different techniques, probably because of the physical differences, the larger pelvic area, and so on of the girls. Mr. Murch uh, admits his instructors, such as Brian Glennie of the Maple Leafs, were a little bit awed by the uh, orientation meeting with Mrs. Peterson last week. Brian said he was involved about five years ago, but women certainly have come a long way since then. Mrs. Peterson says, I only hope the instructors push the girls hard enough. Ah, the times are changing. The question is, can Brian Glennie and the average hockey fan keep up? 50 years later, as I read this, <laughs> and again, I, I'm just kind of dismayed at the way some of this was told. But 50 years later, women's hockey is finally, finally starting to get the recognition and attention it deserves. And if you get a chance and you're anywhere near uh, any center that has women's hockey league, Get out and watch the game. The women hockey players, while the physical differences are there, are just as smart and just as hockey savage as their men counterparts are. The women have hockey sense. Don't uh, They're just hockey players. They're not boys. They're not girls. They're hockey players. And you have to get out and watch these games and watch these fine players. I get as much enjoyment out of watching a, a team of 15-year-old boys uh, go at it on the ice, as I do watching 15-year-old girls play a very competitive game as well. And this week, uh, speaking of Punch Imlac, we're going to leave you with a bit of vintage Punch Imlac. Uh, Punch held court with a bunch of sports writers recently, and he gave them what they were looking for, which was some quotable quotes during uh, the summer hockey news wasteland. Punch uh, was uh, at the NHLPA golf tournament, and this came out, uh, and it uh, went sort of like this. A punch started his uh, soliloquy off with saying, the thought has crossed my mind that Bobby Orr might just have peaked as a hockey player. If Boston made Phil Esposito available, I'd give him Phil Goyette and change for him. But seriously, he has to be hockey's biggest bargain right now at $350,000 in his contract. And if Buffalo couldn't come up with the money, punch says, I'd buy him myself 
and then I'd lease them to the Sabres. Staying on the topic of the Boston Bruins, Punch said that Johnny Busick is a great hockey player even at his age, and Punch revealed that he tried once to get him when he was the general manager of the Maple Leafs. He offered the Bruins George Armstrong in exchange for Johnny Busick. Punch also says that Clarence Campbell has been great for the National Hockey League and has taken a lot of grief from some owners and any time he can give it back, I'll stand up and I'll applaud him. I had two lawyers tell me I couldn't get away with what I did at the draft meetings, leaving Reggie Fleming unprotected five times and drafting him back four times. I proved them wrong, I did it, and I got the Sabres four players for next season to staff the farm team that they never would have had otherwise. Punch talks about his prized first-year man of last season, Gilbert Perrault, of whom he says he has not yet reached his peak and he may turn out to be a greater star than Bobby Orr. Punch talked about the trading of draft picks and that kind of thing, and he said that Clarence Campbell is completely right about prohibiting the trading of draft choices. Punch said he knows a way to make that backfire on teams like Montreal, and we'll talk about a little bit more about that a little later on in this. First on uh, Bobby Orr having peaked, Punch said that uh, Bobby was trying to do things in the playoffs that no one had ever seen him do before and he wasn't succeeding. Punch says, I haven't tried to analyze it too closely, but the thought has crossed my mind that quite possibly he maybe has reached his peak and he can't get any better than what he is. But just remember, he's the best there is. Punch went on to talk about, using as an example, Wayne Carlton, the former Maple Leaf, just drafted from the Bruins by the California Golden Seals. He said that he remembered Wayne as an 18-year-old junior, and he was just the best player you'd ever seen. But he never progressed beyond that. He reached his peak at 18. Now Punch says, take my boy Gilbert Perrault. He's still just a boy, but he's going to peak for uh, probably in about three years. He's going to be so good at that time, you just won't believe it. On Phil Esposito, Punch says he's worth $10 million. I'm being funny, of course. $10 million is... is uh, not what a hockey player will ever be worth but money is nothing in today's hockey that's the point the bodies are what you need and you don't find a player as good as Phil Esposito just any day of the week a year ago we had two players and today the Sabres now have 70. At the draft meetings, we bought five players for $200,000. And I'd sure as hell give another $150,000 for a guy like Phil Esposito. Listen, those five players combined won't score 76 goals for the Sabres next season. He talked about Busick and how good he's become and told how he tried to steal him from the Bruins a few, few years ago by offering George Armstrong. Actually, the deal was an army for, for Busick straight up. It would have been George Armstrong and another guy. And Punch says, we almost made the deal. About that uh, maneuvering that he did at the draft with Reggie Fleming bouncing back and forth on and off the Buffalo list. Punch said that he had this idea before the uh, draft meeting started. And they grabbed a couple of the Sabres uh, lawyers and they went through the rule book with a fine tooth comb and Punch told them, I don't see where the rule book says you, you can't do this. And he said, 
they said, you can't, the lawyer said, I can't do this. Punch said, I'm not interested in what I can't do. I'm only interested in what I can do. And the rule book says I can do this, so I'm going to do it. And despite the lawyer's protestations, Punch pulled it off. But just to be sure, this is something we didn't know about this maneuvering. Punch went to Clarence Campbell just before the draft started and asked him. And Campbell said that drafting a player off your own list does not constitute using your choice. Punch said, I turned to my lawyers and said, you guys just lost. So I could put Reggie on the list, draft him back, and still have a choice on that round. And he used those choices. So, Punch, just how are you going to stop the uh, trading of these draft choices? And Punch says, it's really easy to stop all this draft choice trading if we get smart. Let's take Montreal, for example. They've got all those draft choices for three years, something like about 12 of them. So we say we're not going to trade with Montreal for three years. Now, what are they going to do? If they protect the young players, they'll have to lose some of their regulars. And if they protect the regulars, they're going to use uh, lose the young ones too. They just won't be able to protect everyone and we'll steal some of those players for a song. Now, the writer that Punch was talking to and all this uh, diatribe that he put out, this really interesting statement. This was Francis Rose of the Boston Globe, by the way, and we had to close uh, off the interview with Punch with, of course, a little bit of Boston Bruins content. And uh, Punch said he had a final shot for the Bruins about their changing their style of play. Punch says that will never happen because there's no one in the organization who can make these guys change the way they play. The Bruins might have been the best offensive team of all time, and they will not change. That's Punch Imlach uh, talking on the state of hockey in 1971 in the summer. So that is our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn this time around? Well, we learned the distressing news that just maybe Gordie Howe is going to have to call it quits this year after all. But the question remains, is it really because of the sore wrist or does Gordy just not want to play under the regime that is running the Red Wings these days? We learned a bit about the effects of player agents are having on sports world in the early part of the 1970s, and we learned that at least one prominent sports writer was having trouble getting his head around the idea that hockey is for everyone. That would come along a little later, though, that phrase, wouldn't it? We'll be back with another summer edition of the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast next week. And uh, this is what we'll, we'll have to talk about. There's going to be a few player signings and we'll report on them. Uh, we will have some talk on this new World Hockey Association thing. And some of the reporting that we're going to find and, and uh, give to you next week comes from most unusual locations. And I'm still making up my mind on this one, whether I'm going to do this or not. Uh, one of Stan Fischler's goofier columns appeared in the Sporting News uh, next week, 50 years ago. And if my mood is right, and, and I feel like doing it, I just might report on what Stan's thoughts were on that state of the world of hockey in the summer of 1971. We'll see about that one. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank Andy enough for everything he does here. He's a true media professional, does his own podcasts, and will uh, 
produce podcasts for other folks. If you're interested, contact me and I'll hook you guys up. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, The Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction and exit music. You ever get a chance to see them perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They put on a great high-energy show. Other musical pieces and sound effects are created by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files of the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and all the fine publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at at Hockey50Years. We're on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner. We have a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and this podcast is found on the Hockey Podcast Network. Thanks again for everyone who tunes in every week. A welcome to our new Patreon subscribers that came along in the last week or two. And on that note, we will see you next week. When the ice-